It's good to see you all here this morning. So before I get started, this week has been an interesting week. We're on a normal pathway through Matthew, in which case this morning's sermon would have been on the inevitable outcome of those who reject Jesus Christ in judgment. And I just felt no rest with that sermon. Um, I think it's probably been a hard week for many of you, in some ways, especially with the uh, gathering frustration that I sense in their culture with COVID-19 and the government's response to it, uh, with the hurt and the injury that has been caused, with the general suffering of society. I read this week that the consideration of suicide is about one in four for those who are between 18 and 24. That's a terrifying statistic. I hope it's untrue. But maybe you feel that heaviness. Maybe you feel that frustration. Or maybe you just feel the fatigue of talking about COVID. Anyone else here like that? Just done. You wish our lives could move on, but the shadow just keeps looming. And so... I think probably because of all of those concerns as a pastor, I just don't think the Lord was giving me rest with continuing our path through Matthew. So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Over the last four months or so in our men's group on Friday mornings, by the way, you're all invited as long as you can get up by 6 o'clock and get here by 6. And when I say you all, I mean all you men. Some of you ladies were starting to get ready to crash it. So let me, just, let, let me just walk you through where I see at least members of our church or members of our society, so I assume people in our church. Some of you are, are struggling with anxiety, whether you're joining us online or maybe from uh, the other building. Maybe even you're present here, but you're struggling with fear of COVID. Maybe not for yourself, but for your parents, your grandparents. You're frustrated and angry at a government, government hypocrisy and, and feeling like there is a growing tyranny taking turf away from you and freedom away. Perhaps you feel helpless. And no matter what you do, the government, society is going to rage and you're just a pawn, powerless in the game of life. Maybe you're angry at the hurt that the restrictions or the disease have caused. We have several members who've had loved ones pass away. Maybe you're angry at the virus itself. Maybe you're expressing pride. Pride because you see people display annoyance at the dummies around them. Dummies being anyone who disagrees with your enlightened position. You know, those who wear masks when you don't or those who don't wear masks when you do. Maybe you just have this growing just sense of anger and you don't know who to point your anger gun at, but you just feel frustrated and angry. Then again, maybe your business is raging with success. Maybe you work for Merck or Pfizer or one of those medical companies who's got to be doing pretty good. Maybe you're just lonely because you're trapped. I've interacted with people who have barely left their homes because of fear of COVID. And maybe that describes you. Maybe you're joining us online because... Your health 
is such that you walk outside at risk of loss of life, and so you stay indoors. Maybe you're just disappointed in others you respected. Coworkers, pastors, friends. Maybe your soul just hurts because people you thought were godly have been less than godly in the last couple months. How do you you walk stably through life when you're in the middle of a storm? How do you walk with steadfastness, carefulness, thoughtfulness? I think if you were to consider what Paul has for us in the book of Philippians, and maybe just as a backdrop, understand that the city of Philippi, the apostle Paul was stoned and imprisoned. In fact, his release from prison is what led to the jailer of the prison trusting Christ as Savior. So you might recount that story from the book of Acts in your minds. And, and then you look in chapter 1, and it's evident that Paul is writing from, in, from prison. In fact, he's talking about the prison guards as a part of Caesar's household, the praetorian guard. So we know that he's writing to a city that's suffering persecution because, in fact, they are the ones who stoned him and threw him in prison. And he's writing from prison, and he's talking about having contentment in chapter 4. So I want you to look in chapter 4 with me just as as we introduce the text. By the way, I'm doing something I don't think I've ever done before, and that's trying to preach a whole book in a sermon. So buckle up. You thought you were going to dinner? (laughs) It will be dinner. (laughs) Philippians 4.10. Now, he is writing about giving. And I'm not talking about giving this morning, but I I am concerned that the theology of giving is something that he's built a whole book leading us towards, some of the thinking that drives him. Verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. That that idea of reviving concern means you've been able to give financially. Um, Continuing on, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, that is to give money, nor that I am, speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now look at verse 11 again. He's, He's done what? He's learned in any situation to be content. Continuing on then in verse 13, this might be familiar to some of you. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now you can see clearly in the context of playing football that he's talking about having the power to throw touchdown passes. I say that that tongue in cheek. It's like every sneaker of every Christian athlete has penned on it somewhere, Philippians 4.13. What's the context here? It's financially... Being at rest in your soul, maybe I should say better, it's being at rest in your soul no matter what your financial disposition is, right? It's, it's being content no matter what's going on around you. In fact, if you were to go back to verse 11, when he says, I learned, that, learned to be content, verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I know how to be low as in I know how to be poor. On the economic scale, I, I, I know how to be in the basement, and I also know how to live on the top floor. Now, his point isn't, I know how to get riches and lose them. His point is, I know how to be content when I've lost them and when I get them. I know in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty 
So he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, I, I want you to consider a few things he says there, and then this is my launch point to go back to chapter 1. He says, I have learned. So usually what happens when we come to Philippians 4.13, even if we get the context of, context of financial contentment, if we get that correctly, sometimes we miss the previous verses that say, I have learned. So it's not just that somehow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, Paul was infused with this magical power to be content. It's that he actually had to learn it and then walk in it, in doing so, the grace of Christ strengthens him towards contentment. I want you to consider then how amazing contentment is. That it takes intellectual work, mental discipline, theological rigor, coupled with discipline, granting Christ's grace leads to contentment. It is not easy. Anyone else having a hard time this year? This is a passage for us to rest in. Contentment is not easy. You want to see some discontent people? Go to Beverly Hills. You want to see some others? Go walk the streets of Bakersfield and talk to homeless people. It doesn't matter where you are in life. Malcontents rage everywhere. We want to talk about the battle in your own soul for rest. The discipline of rest. Come back with me to chapter 1. I've written this in first person, assuming you are at rest. So I'm assuming the best about you. I thought about being a little more pokey, like you need to do this. But I'm just going to assume that you're fighting for rest and finding it. And the first thought is this. Here's how we find rest. We treasure the proclamation of Jesus Christ. We treasure the proclamation of Jesus Christ. When you look in chapter 1, Paul is writing from prison about being in prison, and he's doing so to encourage people not in prison. And isn't that a little bit ironic? The guy in prison, possibly waiting for death, is burdened to encourage people who are free. I mean, that's like someone sending us a letter through time who is living in Nazi Germany in 1943 saying, hey, you Americans struggling through COVID, let me just encourage your hearts. You think you've lost freedom. And he doesn't say, look at me. Look how, look how imprisoned I am. He says, look at the gospel proclamation that's happening. So look down with me in chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to do what? Advance the gospel. He doesn't say, has really caused me to struggle with pneumonia in this cold, dungy cave. It should be dingy or dungeony, but probably not dungy. This, this cold prison hasn't, hasn't led to anything except some cause for rejoicing. The cause for rejoicing is anchored to the advance of the gospel. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial praetorian guard. How do you reach the people in Caesar's house when you can't even get through the front door with an invitation? Get arrested. And so he's like, hey, this is great. I'm in a closed country. I got brought in. And now the gospel is being heard and people are trusting in Christ. 
And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. So not only has that led to the sounding of the gospel going out, but now there's a greater boldness. This is fantastic. This is, this is cause for joy. Verse 15. A little, little sour note here. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Those do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Maybe there's an empty spot in the leadership seat, and they think that Paul being push on, put on pause in prison, there's opportunity for them to ascend in the leadership of the church and take Paul's place. And so they're preaching like their lives depend on it because they want to get status and recognition in Paul's former position. Verse 18. So, so what, what is Paul's response then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in sincerity or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And that's why I rejoice. Have you ever thought that maybe during the trials of this last year, the world has opened its ears a little bit wider to hear about Christ? And we have Christians who could do nothing more than think about the risks, the government, the fears, the frustration, the incessant banging of the COVID drum. But there are more people in heaven because of COVID. People are more soft to hearing about eternal things because of the trials of this year. Have you considered that? I want you to look in chapter 2. See the same theme arise here. Look down in verse 14 of chapter 2. Maybe you'll find this a little bit pokey. Get poked. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Says the guy in prison. Right? And he's in prison for doing nothing more than talking and preaching and sharing. It's not like he's trying to raise an insurrection against Caesar. Do all things without grumbling, without disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out, excuse me, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even though I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial altar of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And consider that section as Paul begins by saying, hey, you need to do everything without grumbling, without fighting and disputations. Because this is actually expanding the brightness and the effects and the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is shaping you to look more like Jesus Christ, even though like a drink being poured out, I'm dying I'm rejoicing. You should be happy and rejoice with me. Now, why don't you consider what that means for the people of Philippi who love Paul, who've been led to Christ by Paul, who see him as this blazing champion of bold, steadfastness, courageous preaching, and they realized his light is dimming, 
and will soon be extinguished. But he sees that they have caught fire, and they are now the light. And he says, I'm being poured out, but you've caught light, so I am filled with joy. You who are catching light, and you see me losing in this life my life, should be joyful. Would you have joy when you see your mentor, the one who's helped you to walk in grace and exampled it for you, the most effective tool you've ever met in the hands of God's grace and working? You see him dying, and he says, you should rejoice that my death is causing the gospel flame to light brightly. I think most of us would be sad because Paul is dying. Instead, he says, you should. It's a moral imperative. You should do this. Have joy. We do not have a problem with contentment when we treasure the proclamation of Christ, whether in wealth or poverty, whether in hard circumstances or good circumstances, we treasure the proclamation of Christ. And we trust that God is doing that in good and hard. Despite sin and because of sin, we treasure the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing that we do as those who discipline ourselves toward rest is we face death fearlessly. We face death fearlessly. Now, some of you know that there is an ongoing battle in your soul against fear, and it's hard. So I want you to look at the Apostle Paul once again as preaching to us how to face death. Look in verse 20 of chapter 1. And I want to go back to verse 19 just because I want to put a pin in this for um, theological consideration as we conclude the sermon later. Verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out to my deliverance from prison, is his point. In other words, I know that your prayer and the work of God's Spirit are going to cause me to go free from prison. Verse 20 then, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary." Why don't you look down in verse 27 then, because he turns to the Philippians and challenges them to have that same heart. Verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. So consider the picture of the Philippian church here as a church that's suffering, that's watching Paul possibly die for his faith. He's clearly imprisoned, and he may die, he may live, and he's torn between those two. And the, way, the reason he's torn is because if he dies, he's united with Christ. 
He's in heaven. He receives, he receives the promises that he hopes in. But if he lives, ministry continues. And then he looks at the Philippians and he says, your ability to face threat of persecution and death without fear is a sign to those who only have this life, life to hope in. Because when their death and their livelihood and their earthly treasures are on the line, they are terrified. But for the believer who truly gets it, for me to live is Christ and to die is. So clearly we don't believe this when we are afraid. But when we as Christians recognize the true treasure of heaven, of being with Christ in paradise, then death becomes nothing more than a promotion to a better existence, to a better experience, to a more real hope, because it's grasped and held. It's no longer hope. It's actuated ownership. And we long for that day. And so like Paul I hope you truly want to be with your families, with your friends, working in this world, and engaging in a life that honors Christ. But when you look at heaven, you're like, man, that's look good too. I mean, this is, this is a problem of a good ice cream store. Everything's good, and you can't possibly eat it all. And so like Paul, he says, I'm caught between the two. I don't know which to choose, chocolate or vanilla. They're both awesome. But we don't think like that. Maybe you, like me, don't like chocolate ice cream. Chocolate chip, yes. Chocolate, no. And so you're sitting there. You know in your soul you should like it. You feel a little judged by those who do. But you look at heaven and Christ and you're thinking, I know I should, but I don't. Because I love what God has for me here. But the thought of losing this to gain Christ, it really feels like a loss. And so the threat to your treasure, to your family, to your life strikes fear into your soul because you do not yet treasure Christ like you should. The reason we face death fearlessly is because death is no threat to those who possess eternal life with Christ. And so maybe the Lord is simply reminding you that you can say and sing and act as though you truly treasure Christ. But your fear in your soul is putting a finger on that lie and saying, deal with it. If you cannot face death fearlessly, then you don't love Christ enough. Can we all just kind of internally go, ow, right? Like, man, I, I love the gifts God's given me, that God has given me. Maybe I need to remember that it's God who's given them to me through Christ and that when I gain Christ, I gain all that and more. Because Christ is so precious. The believer can face the uncertainty, the storms, and remain at rest 
because he treasures the proclamation of Christ and then faces death fearlessly because his treasure is Christ. Point three, we serve others because we truly value them. We truly value others. One of the most brutally hard verses for me in application comes in chapter two. Look with me in verse one and we'll read into verse three. That kills me. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That phrase is just hard. Let me read that again. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Deliberately put your mind in a place where you look at everyone around you and say, they're better than me. They deserve this more than me. I am to serve them. They're more significant than me. You want something that is poison to pride? It is living out that verse. I consider others more important than me. Really? And if I was to hear one of my kids say that, I would say, so why do you always fight over the biggest piece of pie? Fight over whose turn it is to do the dishes. Scramble and crawl all over each other to get the best seat in the car. Fight over the iPad and who spent too much time on PlayStation. So what is it for you? Consider what value he's saying here. In humility, count others as more valuable, more significant, more important than you do. By the way, this is just the example of Jesus, isn't it? Mark 10, 45. Jesus says he came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus did not come to be served, but he came to, to serve. And then Paul tells us that. Look in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to. But instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the extent of dying, even a crucifixion death. If the Son of God can set aside all of the beauty and majesty and worship in heaven to serve the likes of us. And then he says, come and be like me. Certainly we can see by example, Christ risked nothing to do so. I mean, what is the risk of letting your sibling have the biggest piece of pie? You lose the biggest piece of pie. That's the risk. It makes sense, right? They eat it. You don't. And here our thought might be, if I let others get served by me, then I lose freedom to enjoy the things I want to enjoy. Their opinion gets precedence over mine. They get time. They get, they get the privilege. They don't have to labor. They, they have advantages, and I lose that. And so we selfishly 
hold on to these things. So what did Christ lose? Well, if you're a slave, you lose freedom. And he was dedicated to obeying his father's will. Apparently, he lost comfort. Can we go there? I mean, he died an excruciating death of torture that was intended to embarrass and torture and kill its victim, the crucifixion. But what did he gain? Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. What do you gain when you value others, truly value them, not some manipulative scheme of serving them to get notice or serving them for personal agendas? What do you truly gain when you serve others because you treasure them for the sake of Christ? An amplified treasure in heaven. It's like there's a multiplication factor on the treasures of heaven. And when you serve others at cost yourself for the sake of Christ, the treasures in heaven get multiplied. And the further you're willing to serve others for the sake of Christ, the more expansive and rich you're welcome in heaven. So what do you risk when you serve others? In this life, you may risk much. You may, like Jesus, be led to the cross or like Paul, be led to prison to be beheaded. Or like others, to be stoned, to be burned to death, to be imprisoned, to lose family and prestige in the community. You, you could lose all of that. But at worst, that cost ends when you, make, when you meet Jesus. And treasures are rich. So how can we face a turbulent society The grief of our souls at the loss of loved ones, the suffering of loved ones, the inconsistency of the application of laws that hurts people we love. How can we walk into wealth and prosperity, power and privilege, and remain anchored? Love others more than you love yourself. Serve others because you value them. We do this because we treasure Christ, the proclamation of Christ, and others more than we treasure ourselves and circumstances in our lives. Point four, we treasure personally knowing Christ more than everything else. Okay, so it's not just about the proclamation of Christ. This is actually kind of a tag on to, to point two, isn't it, in some ways. I want you to come with me to chapter three. Paul gives his personal testimony. He says, whatever gain... I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, Paul gives his resume in the first few verses of that chapter. He talks about all that he accomplished, all that he had done. Paul had built for himself a mountain of personal accomplishment, personal education, achievement in life, to a position of glory and power and influence and respectability in society. And he trashed it all when it came to Christ. It was all gone when he came to Christ. He says that very clearly. He says, I lost everything, verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So what did it cost Paul to come to Jesus? All of that resume, his, 
his balance total on his sheet. All of it. Up in smoke. And he looks at that and he says, listen, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul is not 20 years later going like, oh boy, I made a mistake. I had it. And I gave it away. He's looking at that now saying, the stuff that called me away from Christ is garbage. It's to be flushed on the toilet and sent to the sewer away from me because it stinks. It's dung, manure, when compared to the treasure of knowing Christ. Everything is loss. It's interesting is verse 8. I count is present tense. I try not to nerd out on you too often in terms of Greek, but the idea of present tense has an ongoingness to it. So Paul, decades after, decades after, he lost everything in terms of prestige and achievement and power and standing. Years after, there is still a sense in which he is deliberately saying, I don't value that still. I think that's significant. He doesn't say, I counted it as loss. He's not talking about the point in time decision where he came to Christ. He is saying today, he still looks at the fair market value of all that he accomplished and says, it's debt, trash, garbage, refuse, manure, get it away. Because I have Jesus. Did he suffer loss? All of his life had been in the pursuit and value of these things. And he still says, I was chasing trash. And I still have to discipline my soul to call it trash. Point five. We discipline ourselves to be at rest. We discipline ourselves to be at rest. Come with me to chapter 4. Verse 8. He's wrapping things up. He's called them repeatedly to, to consider these people. Consider himself. Consider Jesus Christ. Consider Epaphroditus. Consider Timothy. Consider all of these people. Consider and think about them. Think about them. Verse 8. What does he say? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, do what? Think about these things. Think about these things. Because the world and your life and society and economy and politics and advertising and Christmas are calling to your soul to treasure something besides Jesus. Something besides the proclamation of the message of Jesus. Something besides the walk with Jesus. It's calling you to treasure anything that is not truly treasure. So you have to deliberately, purposefully, Think about the good things. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard 
and seen where? In me. Do what? Practice these things. You know, Paul was not giving his example of suffering by treasuring the proclamation of the gospel so that he could have joy as a way of just saying, hey, listen, in case you didn't know, I'm awesome. It's like, I'm, I'm a really good Christian. Why did Paul give you chapter one so that you could know how to suffer when in prison under threat of death and be fearless, not only fearless, but rejoicing in the proclamation of the gospel? Why did he do that? Because a punchline was coming in chapter 4. You need to do this. Are you doing this? You need to deliberately, purposefully put your mind at the task of treasuring what is good. Of holding fast and approving what is truly beautiful. Because if you don't, you're a mess and a basket case all balled into one, chasing everything that flags your attention. You're going to be miserable. The things you've learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things. Practice them. You see the, the word learned there? We come down and he says, I have learned how to be content. I have learned this. And now he's just given an exposition on how to suffer with a proper mindset so you can be at rest in the middle of a chaotic world. James chapter 1 talks about trials. And in the middle of that, he says, a double-minded man is stable. Double-minded means a man of two minds. Right? Double-minded. I know that's profound, but you just got to walk through this one. Now, here's the problem with a double-minded man, is they take one step one way because they value something over here, and then they take another step this way. And, and then it says he's unstable, and he's driven by the wind. That is, circumstances control his joy, control his peace, control his rest. Because he has no stability, no anchor and compass in his life that drives him to true north, to Jesus Christ. He becomes a, a subject that's at the mercy of circumstances. Now maybe that was you this year. Maybe that is you this week. And you're, you're controlled by circumstances. You're controlled by the profitability of your business, because if they're not profitable, you lose your job. Maybe you're controlled by the hope you have and who's in the presidential seat. Maybe you're controlled even by the little mundane things of life. You walk into your house and someone tweaks you and boom, you're angry. You walk into your house and everything's good and you're being served by the family, and you're like Jesus. I want you to go back to verse 9, Philippians 4. Look at that last little line. What you have learned, what you've received, what you've heard, what you've seen in me, practice these things, and what? 
the God of peace. The God of what? Peace. We'll be with you. One of the clear lessons in the Gospels, a spiritual reality illustrated through the physical world is Jesus in the middle of a storm. And the disciples are panicking. And they wake Jesus up. And they're crying out in fear, saying, calm the storm. And the brutal words out of the mouth of Christ, I mean, with loving, kind words, he cuts deep. King James here a little bit. Wherefore didst thou doubt? Why are you afraid? Listen, if you have the king of kings in your boat, your fear is nonsense. It's theological rejection of the sovereignty of God. It is practical blasphemy. And it is the heart of worldliness. Philippians 4. You've learned these things. Practice them. And the God of peace will be where? With you. He doesn't save you from the storm. He's with you. The God of peace in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, this little letter that your servant wrote to Philippi, this precious city under the weight of suffering, written by an apostle in jail, facing threat of death, teaches our souls to be at rest. Lord, I pray that through the strength of Christ's grace, you would grant grace of rest to those who discipline themselves to treasure Christ, to treasure the proclamation and the advance of the message of Christ, to those who treasure Christ's people more than they treasure their own comfort, and who treasure walking in fellowship with your precious Son. Father, grant them peace. For those who do not know Christ, for those who do not know rest, for those who have no hope that in the storms the God of peace will be present. Father, call them today to turn from trusting in anything but Jesus so that they might trust in Jesus alone and turn from sin, turn from self, and be saved. Lord, we pray these things. Because we believe that through the prayers of your people, you will do work. And so we pray that you would do this work of grace in us. Amen.